0: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This person died in 2020, age 87.
1: She once said her writing style was partly inspired by Vladimir Nabokov, who she studied literature under at Cornell.
0: Wow, that's a lot of different words. Danielle Steele.
1: Not Danielle Steele. Her high school nickname was Kiki. Oh boy, Uh, Jackie
0: Collins still alive?
1: Not Jackie Collins. She was soft-spoken and
2: prized collegiality.
0: She went to college. That's what that means. (laughs) She to college. Uh
2: She prized it,
1: apparently. It's
2: a hard one. (laughs) Oh, Angela Lansbury.
1: Oh, great guess. In the mid-20 teens, her nickname and likeness became an internet sensation.
2: Oh, so she's a meme. Now I'm feeling just really stupid. In
1: 2016, she called Donald Trump a, quote, faker. But she later said her comments were ill-advised.
2: Wow, I I'm,
3: I I'm so mad at myself for not knowing right
0: now. I am going to go way out on a Star Wars limb and say Carrie Fisher.
1: Not Carrie Fisher. She was barely five feet tall and weighed about a hundred pounds.
0: I I don't I don't have the first clue. Why am I blanking on this? Oh my god! Is it Betty White?
1: It, not Betty White. She was the second woman to serve on the Supreme Court and a pioneering advocate for women's oh, rights.
0: Man. Yeah. RBG. Oh my God. RBG. (laughs) The notorious RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Today's dead celebrity
1: is Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Ruth bader ginsburg
1: welcome to famous and gravy i'm michael osborne my name is amit kapoor and on this show we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died 2020, age 87. First line of the obituary.
3: No, no, we're not ready. Okay. (laughs) We have to talk about this first. Why are we doing this show?
1: This is different than anything else we've done before. Far different. Far different in some ways. And here's, I think, what's different from every other Famous and Gravy conversation you and I have had. I think people are still grieving her loss. I think if you look at almost every other dead celebrity we've had on Famous and Gravy, some people didn't even know that they had died. And even when they did, they were like, oh, that's too bad. But there is real collective emotional pain and, and
3: grief. Correct. I mean, it, it passes our one-year test, but it's fresh, and we're still seeing it play out. And the, the circumstances around the timing of
1: her death are Shakespearean. You know, I mean, it's like this unbelievably high-stakes passing. And I feel like maybe this, this is one of the reasons I want to do Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Famous and Gravy is that, you know, to the extent that I have any grieving to do, like, I want to do it here. Yeah, fair enough. with so you, you know.
3: The question on my mind as well is we a lot of times pick figures that are in the middle, right? We've talked about, you know, the 30% Vanderbeek rule. Yeah. We've never talked about a, the other side of it. You know, what if somebody is so apparently flawless? Mm. what is the point of this conversation? Well, I don't know.
1: We've done Nelson Mandela. We did Neil Armstrong. We've done people who are lionized as heroes. I mean, that's not what we do here, exactly. We certainly look at immutable heroic qualities and try and figure out what do I aspire to? What does my inner best self look like? But I think there's also questions about the pathway there and you know how would it have felt like along the way that are entirely separate from how we as a society should feel about this person. You know, desirability and lionization are to me two different things. Yeah, that's a very good point. First line of the obituary,
3: should we do this now? Are you asking my permission now?
1: I am, fucking A, you cut me off. Because I interrupted, I I
3: broke protocol. If this was the army, I would be doing 100 push-ups. It was the
1: right thing to do.
3: (laughs) Okay, yes, Okay. let's get to the first category.
1: Hello, famous and gravy listeners. Michael Osborne here. Sorry for the interjection, but there is actually one more thing to say before we get to the first category. Ahmet and I recorded this conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg before news broke that the U.S. Supreme Court is likely to overturn Roe v. Wade. At the time that we're releasing this episode, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is still not final, but as you can imagine... Amit and I spent some time in this conversation talking about the future of reproductive rights. Please just keep that in mind as you listen. This conversation happened before that news broke. Okay, no more interjections. Let's get back to the show. All right. First category, first line of her obituary. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second woman to serve on the Supreme Court and a pioneering advocate of women's rights, who in her ninth decade became a much younger generation's unlikely cultural icon, died on Friday at her home in
3: Washington. She was 87. Yeah, that sums it up. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. Second woman, yes. Yes. Pioneering advocate, absolutely. Yeah. Why she was such a big deal was true. Her ascension into pop culture, which is completely unusual for a Supreme Court justice. I like the summation.
1: I do too. Here's my quibble with it. What it's missing to me is uh, personality. Like I could have used patient maybe or deliberative. I mean, there are qualities about her as a woman that are not captured in here. This is about what she did, not who she was.
3: That's a quibble. There's no picture painted. Right. Yeah, because they say pioneering advocate. Yeah. Right. Her physical stature was part of the whole story. It was part of the whole irony of being named after the notorious B.I.G.
1: Right. It's not a major mark against, but it's my quibble with the first line of this obituary. So okay. I have my score. Do you have other things you want to say about this?
3: I like how you put it, and I think you reached to something that was somewhere in my head and I couldn't get it out, is that it wasn't colorful. It didn't paint a picture of who this woman was and why she was such a phenom. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. Okay. I'm going to give you my score. Okay.
1: I give it an eight. I think it's got a lot I like, it captures a tremendous amount, it's accurate, it's pretty comprehensive, and it does get its stature and power, but it, for me, lacks color. Yeah, Uh so
3: it's a tight eight. So I'll take your exact same reasons. Before you brought up that point, I probably would have been in an eight. Yeah. But I'm going to go seven. Color is everything in the obituary, the way that you and I see it. That's why we play this category. Yeah. And so I think it needs a little bit more of a negative. That makes sense.
1: All right. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to figure out five reasons why we love this person and why we should be talking about them. Gosh, a lot to say here. Do you want to lead or do you want me to lead?
3: I'm happy to lead. I'm going to go with the one of the more obvious ones, but one that cannot be ignored, style.
1: Do you mean rhetorical style or like dress style? or Dress what?
3: style. The earrings. Yes. That was part of her look from very early on. Yeah. To have those, I, I don't know the name, the kind of the droopy... Do you know the word for it? I need another vocabulary lesson. What do you call the thing that she was most famous for?
1: When I went to Google and said, how do you say
3: it? It's not jabot. It's, I think it's jabot.
0: Jabot or
1: jabot.
3: So that's what, I mean, a singular piece of... We're talking about the the, the collar that you wear with the, the spring The collar, board. which we just yeah. simplified into a collar. I think most of the yeah. recording did. Yeah. But it has a name, a jabot. She owned that motherfucker.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and had a lot of them and like wore different ones for different and occasions. No one can
3: ever claim it again. Yeah, that's that pretty is, awesome. That is her corner. Fucking A.
1: And so, in terms of desirability, is that about like. The ability to look through your closet and say, This is the right thing for today.
3: Is that what you admire? So, with the Jabots, so many people like mailed her them, and she must have had hundreds, but yeah. she had her favorites, and she chose different colors for different things that she was doing. If she was dissenting, if she was doing a majority opinion, right? Like she had a thing for it, right? But everyone knows her from, you know, kind of her rise, and especially after her death, that's what was commemorated in all of the images was the Jabot. Yeah. So, on the desirability aspect, Aspect, yes, it is having a style that is so unique that you can put up one piece of clothing and say, oh, that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this is not just over the robe, right? Yeah. You see those clips of her going to the opera yes. and so forth. She's an extremely well-dressed woman.
1: Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have more to say about this in a later category. Great one right out of the gate. Well yeah. done. and yeah. I'm,
3: I'm looking for my jabot.
1: Yeah, no, we'll, we'll find it. There's an arts and we, <laughs> in Dallas today. Yeah, okay. This yeah. could
3: be the beginning of a new me.
1: Yeah, we'll I, I find it.
3: Okay, you for number two.
1: Okay, also a little bit in the very obvious. I wrote strategic argumentation. You know, I come from a family of lawyers. My dad, my brother, my grandfather, my cousin. I mean, they're all over the place in my family, and I absolutely flirted with the idea of law. There is a lot to be said for what it means to construct an argument, right? How to put it together and arrange the bits of evidence and to tell a story with that evidence that leads to a conclusion that results in, ideally, justice. She did that, obviously, as a lawyer and as a Supreme Court justice. You know, I knew that she was a feminist icon, but I, until getting ready for this episode, was not aware of her work with the ACLU during the 1970s. And I didn't realize quite what a ginormous figure she was in terms of legal reform through the 1970s. I mean, she argued in front of the Supreme Court six different times and won five cases in the 1970s. So I admire that. I wish I could put together a damn good argument. And it's not even just like putting together an argument in a legal case. It's also using all of those cases to result in societal change and to say like let me assemble all of this over the course of years to fight for gender equality so yes strategic argumentation okay a little bit vanilla in a way but i feel like it had to be pointed out yeah it's a good number two
3: thank you all right what do you got for number three Friendship with Scalia. That was my number three too. It was your number three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's. Do we have to do like a jinx? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Well, let's go for it. Let's talk about it. What do you love about it?
1: I love it in a lot of ways. He was a very famous conservative justice, argumentative guy. There's a phrase that gets used in, with the Supreme Court that I've heard a lot lately, which is that it has neither a purse nor sword. So the Supreme Court doesn't have an army, so no sword, and doesn't have access to, you know, treasury. So it doesn't have a, a pocketbook. So all the Supreme Court really has is its reputation. And, you know, I think. The justices are knowledgeable about that. So why that's important and how that relates to to the friendship with Scalia is that I think so much of our political lives these days optimize for division. Like both political parties benefit from a lot of hatred at the other side. And so I look at politics and the media today as sort of optimizing for this grand battle between the left and right. The Supreme Court, ideally, is a little bit different. And their friendship Captures that, that they liked each other, genuinely liked each other, genuinely hung out, went to the opera together, rode on elephants together. They were like looking for ways to agree, even though they had major disagreements. And I like those friendships, you know? I like friendships where I don't agree with what you're saying, but there's like obviously respect. And I like that he made her laugh. Like you see that a few times. Like she thinks he's a funny guy. And so to like see her laugh because Kalia's cracking her up. There's just something so goddamn charming about that.
3: Right. Are you two ever going to agree on big issues
2: and still maintain the friendship? We agree on a whole lot of stuff. You, you do. Know, Ruth is really bad only on the knee-jerk stuff. She is... <laughs> she is...
3: So that's what I love. I just love the anti-divisiveness of it. I think exactly as you said, no swords, no treasury. Yeah, right. It's a lower stakes thing. We're not talking about you know Putin becoming friends with Zelensky. Right, right. We're not talking about those type of opposition. So it it is a certain category of opposition, and there there is place in this world for fuck you, you're wrong. But you mentioned this, Zelensky and Putin. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But this wasn't one of them, and to do it at such a high level, yeah. and in such a visible level, I think is great symbolism.
1: Yeah, and that' great. Okay. Like,
3: I guess four is yours.
1: So I'm looking for the right phrasing here. You and I talked about this. This came up big time in the Shirley Temple episode that I don't want somebody to be famous for just one thing. I want there to be an upward staircase in life, right? And I love her upward staircase, that she is one of the very few women at Harvard Law in her young years, and she's a mom at the time. Then she is with the ACLU for a number of years and leading... The charge to reform the laws of the United States in terms of the feminist movement. And then she's a judge and then she's a Supreme Court Justice and then a pop culture icon. So there is like this constant evolution and growing in stature and importance and becoming more and more interesting as a human being as she ages, which I think is incredible. Like that, I cannot imagine, you know, a kind of better upward trajectory where it's all building on the previous thing you were doing, but it sort of like has new light and new importance and new relevance, you know, with each new stage.
3: Yeah. And fandom, like who would have predicted fandom?
1: Yes. I mean, I don't know who the second most famous Supreme Court justice is or was when Ginsburg was alive. You know, her fame had breakout stardom. It was a little bit Yogi Berra
3: that way. You know what I mean? Famous for reasons beyond. Yeah. So the thing you liked was the upward staircase.
1: Or at least it just was interesting decade to decade, chapter to chapter. Yeah, it happened to culminate in fandom. And I like that, you know, her fame, such as it was, sort of reached a peak towards the end. But overall, it's, it's the multiple acts thing. That's really my number four. Yeah. You know, whether it involves fame or not is separate from desirability. I just want multiple acts in my life. You know,
3: reinventions. That's what life should be all about.
1: So that's my number four.
3: I like it. Number five. I think mine is the prequel to yours. So you started off, you said she went to Harvard. And eventually Columbia. But yeah. And eventually Columbia. Well, Cornell undergrad, Harvard right. and Columbia so sort of right. combined law school. I want to go before that. Classically hot chick.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm <laughs> a to response to that.
3: <laughs> well, obviously you are by laughter.
1: I just didn't I just didn't think you were going <laughs> to
3: But I have a reason behind this. You talk. So, yeah, please. This was my reaction when you brought up that Ebert number 3. Kiki, as her friends knew her then. Yeah. One, just unambiguously good-looking. <laughs> She yeah. was. She yeah. was hot. Yes. But she also did these very girly girl things. Yeah. She was a high school cheerleader. Yes. When she got to Cornell, she was in a sorority. Yeah. So here's what I like about it. <laughs>
1: Sorry. <laughs> Uh, classic hot chick and talking about RBG. I've got the giggles a little bit, but
3: so my point is this yeah. is that it's exactly what you say in the multiple acts, but I'm taking it to an earlier stage. Yeah. Right? You have as as a parent now in the 2020s, you may look and say, I would love my daughter to be a Supreme Court justice. So yes. you know, in uh, uh, that's high true. school, she's certainly not gonna be a cheerleader. Right. Okay. Kiki. Was all of these things. Yeah. You know, she was hot. She was extremely studious. Yes. Right. Cheerleader, sorority, all those just very like American girly girl boxes. Yeah. She checked and look at the path after that. Are
1: you I mean are you making a case for combining sort of sexual attractiveness with like all these other great qualities of what it means to be a person divorced from? sex and you know sexual attraction no
3: that's not the point i'm making at all as a side point i I, do know what i'm trying to ask yeah as a side point i think there is nothing greater than somebody who's both attractive and brilliant no i'm making the point of not predestined That you would, if I just give you a profile and I say, this person was an extremely attractive high school student and she was a cheerleader and she was in a sorority, you fill in the rest of the story. You'd probably fill in something to do with, you know, a job, a married at a certain age and all these things, which she was, but you're the likelihood that you would end that story in being one of the most powerful women of the century is pretty unlikely. Yeah, that's great. And that's what I like about it.
1: Okay, let's review So we had style We had strategic argumentation We had friendship with Scalia Number four was many acts Or chapters in life And number five was Hot hot, chick Hot chick, but not predetermined Actually, the way I
3: wrote it down is I wrote classically hot
1: Classically hot, that's great Let's move on. Category three, Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind, and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. The point of this category is to imagine what sort of memories or experiences might have been interesting. What is your Malkovich moment for Ruth Bader Ginsburg?
3: Here's the one I landed on. I got this from the documentary, but I'd heard it referenced also. So picture the scene. She worked tremendously hard, regardless of whatever age she was at. And she would often be in her chambers, you know, reading or writing. And sometimes she'd go and she'd be there till two in the morning. Like her grandkids would talk about this, that like... They they said that she sometimes had to be like literally picked up and taken home. That's that's the Malkovich moment, because Marty would come literally... Her husband. Yeah, Yeah. to the chambers at two or three in the morning and like pick her up. and, up. (laughs) And be like, honey, it's time to go home. Well, there's so many aspects of it. One, just the sheer focus mm. that she had to even work those hours. Yeah. Right. You read about some of these opinion pieces and, and books on focus, and that degree of focus is is like being on a certain drug. It's flow state. Yeah, flow state. It really is flow state. So yeah. to to have that and have it be so important, I think is one. And then to have your beloved. Be the one to physically come and say, time to go, honey. I'm picking you up and we are going home and you're sleeping. Yeah. That's connection. That's yeah. intimacy yeah. like none other. And it's cute as hell. Yeah. There's so much importance going on yeah. around it. So yes, flow, intimacy, cuteness, significance, all wrapped up into that moment. It's a good Malkovich moment. It's a good one.
1: I really struggled with my Malkovich moment because I'm going to save a lot of conversation that I want to have with you for the regrets category. But I mentioned a second ago that there's a Shakespearean quality to her death. One piece of that story for me is the change in narrative around Bill Clinton, that most former presidents tend to experience more favorable ratings as time goes on. And there has been a real, I think, shift in narrative around Bill Clinton and some of his sexual improprieties. I think that it is a very interesting fact that Ginsburg, this incredibly important feminist icon, was appointed by Bill Clinton. And I wonder when in her life she looked back at that fact that I got here because of this guy and just thought, huh, huh. I think it's probably somewhere in the lead up to Trump's election in 2016. And looking at the Clintons and and seeing that race narrow and tighten is my Malkovich moment. I
3: wonder what she thought about like... In 2016, looking back at 1993.
2: Yeah. I am proud to nominate this path-breaking attorney, advocate, and judge
1: to be the 107th justice to the United States Supreme Court.
2: Mr. President, I am grateful beyond measure for the confidence you have placed in me and I will strive with all that I have to live up to your expectations in making this appointment
1: and just that that was the president who then put her in this position as the senior member as the you know one of the most important voices on the court even if commonly in the minority and dissenting
3: that's what i got yeah i have a lot of thoughts on that yeah i imagine you do one is could be just the universe right the man yeah. like it's a, it's a cosmic appointment yeah that the man points her who is A rising feminist icon is just going to become much more so. I don't think Bill Clinton is anti-feminist by any means, but certainly his acts speak to anything but feminism.
1: Clinton, you know, was in some ways a sleazeball, but also, you know, responsible for some meaningful action, one of which being appointing Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the court. You know, I I just I I wonder how she sees that in herself, that her, her own positioning in that story.
3: Yeah, and I'm kind of curious too about, you know, just God as a puppet yes. in that moment and just like channeling himself through Bill Clinton. Unbeknownst to Bill Clinton, it's because you've got a bit of a storied past that's only going to get worse. Yeah. And these are your pre reparations. Do you
1: remember the movie being John Malkovich?
3: I do. And you remember John Cusack's character? I like what his profession was? Not exactly. Something was, with a lot of filing cabinets. He was a puppeteer. Ah, that's right. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. God is a puppeteer. I like that.
2: Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get twenty percent off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
1: All right, category four. Love and marriage. How many marriages? Also how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? I think we should maybe just make this fast and great. One marriage to Martin in 1954. Ruth was 21 years old. They met when she was 17. He died in 2010. Ruth was 77. She lived 10 more years as a widow. They were married a total of 56 years. And by all accounts, an unbelievably great marriage. Yes. Like he was progressive before his time. There was equality in the marriage. He did all the cooking, a lot of the caretaking. When her career was advancing, he said, great. He was an enormous champion of her and even helped sort of lobby to get her on the court when the appointment became available in the early 90s. And it also sounds like just a hilarious, gregarious, you know, kind of contrast to her. We talked earlier about the contrast between Ginsburg and Scalia. I think there's some of that contrast there too between Ruth and Martin. And looks like just an unbelievably fucking great
3: marriage. Yeah. You also need to point out too, you can say that he carried a lot of the weight yeah. during this. But like in those early years when they're finishing up law school and he has testicular cancer and there is a child, Yes, she is like carrying 45 plates at once. But all these things seem to strengthen rather than weaken the marriage. And I think that is one of the incredible parts of it.
1: I was having a conversation with my wife because we had our anniversary recently. She got drunk and cried and it was very sweet and wonderful. And I, I think one of the things that I look for in a marriage is do two people lift each other up? Is the sum greater than the individual parts? And Boy, do I see that here? you know, boy, do I see these two people lifting each other up for 56 years and it's it's a fucking love story and I had no idea I would have liked to have meet this guy. I would have liked to have had dinner at the Ginsburg household and I love everything about this extremely high scores for the marriage record
3: yeah and when you say her ideas about gender equality, I think it's also really important to note her ideas were just about fairness right. granted like she's a feminist icon, but she also argued on behalf of men. Many times, who were denied things like child support when their spouse died. Yeah. And so forth. So, fairness based on gender, was her big thing.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I meant to bring up that point with strategic argumentation, that one of the ways in which she's able to get the laws changed in the Supreme Court to have favorable rulings in the 1970s is by bringing cases where, look how men are being discriminated against because of these fucked up laws in the books. Because her whole point was, if I can get the nine male justices on the Supreme Court to see how laws are biased against men, then I can fight for gender equality.
3: That's brilliant. So on the love and marriage category, let's make it about you for a second. So how old were you when you met Allison? Well, this is kind of corny. I've actually known her since I was
1: uh, in grade school. So I've known her since I was like nine or ten years
3: old. Okay, and the first time you dated? That was in college.
1: I was, I think, 20. She was 19. So now you're married.
3: 16 years? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want you to make the argument for meeting somebody at... Seventeen or twenty, and marrying them and sticking with them through the rest of their life. You know, we talk about new chapters a lot. Mm -hmm. That's the theme of this show. I know in my group of friends, especially those of us that got married later, like in their thirties, or me, not not at all. We a lot of the ways we rationalize it is well, we had more life to live, right? We learned more about ourselves as we went on different experiences, and the decision I was capable of making at seventeen or 20 are 100% different than they are for the me now.
1: I think that's the tension of the thing, of getting together young. I do feel like there are days when I absolutely wonder, like, did I experiment with myself enough in young adulthood? Did I try myself out in different relationships enough? And I think, I, Allison, if you were to ask her, in her more honest moments, would say she has some of those same questions. So that, I think we're aware of that that argument, and I think it has a lot of validity. I think the flip side, and I think where she and I would
3: probably both agree, because I think we... You were, and you and Ruth or you and Allison? Me and Allison. Okay. And Ruth. Uh, and Marty. I'm going to set um, you guys up for dinner in heaven. Or
1: <laughs> I look forward to it. Apparently Marty's got to cook. French cuisine. The argument for it is is that you figure out how to reinvent yourself within the marriage. You do have to carve out some space for independence and individual growth while still holding hands, right? You take on new risks and you experiment with your identity and you, you know, throw yourself into creative endeavors or whatever the hell it is that this whole like sort of human lifetime experience is all about. But you build up enough of a foundation of trust that you can do that with some sort of calculated risk. I always say stick with somebody long enough to fall out of love with them and then fall back in love with them. You know, not just like the curveballs life throws you, but even more than that, the, I don't know, the experience of like, I don't want to be with you today. I'm fucking sick of you. I'm going to go hike in the woods for three weeks or I'm going to go, you know, hang out with the guys or whatever. It is a very, reassuring thing when, when you're able to do that and then come back to the relationship and say, it turns out I do still love you. I just needed some space. And I think that's a, a hard thing to negotiate. And I think the earlier you figure that out in the relationship, the more you optimize for a long-term thing. I don't know. That's a lot, but does that answer the question?
3: Yeah, it's I, if I could pare it down to a few words, it's growing together, yes. right? Because the, the argument that I started with is that there's an absence of growth. Yes, and what you are saying is that there's growing together.
1: Yes, but I also do take the point that like your growing together is hard. It's harder. Like I there, and there's a part of me that's envious of the you know men and women I know
3: who had a longer experience of singlehood. That's Many of it. them are envious of the absence of choice too. You know, yeah. early commitment and just being able to, to grow without that being sort of a looming worry yes. because you're confident enough in, in your partner. Yeah, You told me that you saw some Ebertian qualities in me Indeed. in my view of art, and, and I'm going to pass that compliment back that I see some Ruth and Marty qualities in you and Allison.
1: Well, thanks, man. You're welcome. I'll take that. Okay, okay. category five. Net worth. Google the net worth of any person and you can figure out an answer. I had a harder time finding a good answer on this. I did. did
3: there was a range that was given a lot. I saw eight come up enough. I think eight is about, sound, sounds about right. I don't know why, but it
1: was not as easily knowable as this category usually is. But
3: eight million. Yeah. That's great. That's great. That's it, a good number. I mean, the salary is very public. She did get a lot of yeah. cash prizes for, you know, these awards that she won. From my understanding is almost all of that, though, she donated. To her causes. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I don't think this woman was driven by by money. But, you know, given her power and given her intellect and given her influence, I I really like the number 8 million. She's able to live very comfortably in Washington, D.C. And apparently, I saw this too, her housekeeper was part of the will. Okay, shall we move on? Yes. All right, category six, Simpsons, SNL, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL and The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. I'll go through this really quick. SNL, there's the Kate McKinnon impersonation, which is hilarious. Yes. You know, I like my men like I like my decisions. Five-four. <gasps> That's a third-degree oh.
0: Ginsburg. Oh,
1: There's a really great RBG rap in 2018. I don't know if you've seen this. Yes. Yeah, Pete Davidson. So that's SNL. I didn't find any other impersonations. Did she ever show up? I never I... saw that either, which I would have liked, but I didn't see it. In fact, in the documentary, she wasn't even aware of the, like, you see her watching the Kate McKinnon impersonation and laughing, yes. which I think is kind of. Endearing. The Simpsons did a thing, I think this is right after Trump's election, but before he had taken office, and it was his first 100 days. In that episode, Trump appoints Ivanka to replace RBG, and it's pretty funny.
0: The new Supreme Court Justice Ivanka takes Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the bench. You can buy Ivanka's robe
3: with gavel earrings for only 1,000 rubles.
0: You said you'd replace me with Garland!
1: (laughs) And she's also mentioned in another episode or two, including Ned's Notable Lefties episode. Remember the leftorium? This came up somewhere mm-hmm. else. So she's mentioned a handful of times on The Simpsons, but never voiced herself. And in terms of Hall of Fame, I did see a National Women's Hall of Fame that she was inducted to in 2002. Pretty damn famous. And I mean, I guess this is probably the place to mention the notorious RBG thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's this law student at the time who made it a meme, and then it kind of took off, and then it became a blog and a book. Anyway, I, I wonder, like, in 2005, how many people would have recognized Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name on the street?
3: Only Washington insiders and that's my, political nerds. That's my hunch.
1: So, I mean, the breakout fame really is a 2010s phenomenon, I guess.
3: Yes. A couple of other things in the Lego movie there is a Lego figurine of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that is shown in the sitcom The Good Place. Did you ever watch that? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is uh, a character in there who is like the gossipy one. And so they ask her, what is the craziest celebrity, secret celebrity hookup? And the woman says it was RBG and Drake. (laughs) Pretty good. So so back to Halls of Fame. You said the National Women's Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. There were also God, they list like the honorary degrees, which I would occupy the rest of the show. Yeah. If I said them, but I'm not going to. But I will say first woman ever to lie in state and first Jewish person ever to lie in state after her death.
1: I did see that. Yeah.
3: All right. Famous. Famous. Clearly famous. She's clearly famous.
1: Last of the easily knowable categories? Yes. Category seven. Over, under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for a person when they were born, did they beat the house odds, and as a measure of grace. She had to have just crushed it. Yes. Life expectancy for women in the U.S., born in 1933, was 65.1. She died at 87, having survived two bouts of cancer previously, 22 years over. So, crushed it, and I would also say, unbelievably graceful.
3: Yeah, it's almost like peak grace yes in in those years it's a a life lesson on how to age and how to die her sort of celebrity stardom rises her significance rises as a widow yeah and goddamn just the the definition of grace almost
1: yeah let's pause for a word from our sponsor
3: Michael, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, If you could take today's dead celebrity to any retail store,
1: what would it be? Ooh. I think I would take him to half-price books, Ahmed. Half-price books? Half-price books, absolutely. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I I love shopping for books with people. Shopping for books always stimulates interesting conversation, right? You browse the different aisles and you see, you know, different topics come to mind. Have you ever read this author? Have you ever read that book? It's just a good place to talk and wander and discover. So yeah, absolutely. Half Price Books is an awesome venue to connect with people, to discover books that you've long forgotten about or that you haven't read. And it's all a great price. Frugality is something I desire in life.
3: It really is an attractive quality on you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And you know what? Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are over 120 stores and you can find out more at hpb.com.
2: Hey, I'm Gianna Demedio from the So Sorry for Your Loss podcast. I bet you already know what we talk about with that title. That's right, we talk about grief. And much like your friends here at Famous and Gravy, we weave in how celebrities interact with that too, highlighting the grief in the news each week and going over topics surrounding grief that should be talked about more, but just aren't. If you've experienced a loss and want to join a community of others who have too, come on over to So Sorry for Your Loss podcast. We are not your average grief group. That's So Sorry for Your Loss podcast, wherever you listen. listen to your podcast and find me on social at so sorry with Gianna.
1: Okay. Thus far in our episode, we have gotten to really sort of the easily knowable information at this point in famous and gravy. We start asking a series of introspective questions, trying to get at what it would have been like to have been this person. First of these categories is man in the mirror. What did they think of their own reflection? Ahmed. What do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought of her reflection in the mirror?
3: Tough one because there was the style that I brought up, but she was also prior to this pop culture era, she was quite shy and she's even still was then. Yeah. You know, she's very always appears kind of nervous, even like when speaking, but it's in her her body language too. I don't think she really gave a shit yeah. about her reflection. I think she looked and saw back all of what she is capable of and what she has done or going to be doing, and that was enough. So you're saying she liked her reflection? She liked her reflection.
1: I didn't think about it nearly as much as you did. I thought the style alone was enough for me to give it a pretty confident yes. The jabots, as we were discussing. The jabots? The jabots, the collars. There were
3: times, however, that she did not wear a a jabot. Indeed. Indeed. Presumably brushing her teeth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure, well, there's the end of the day. You got to dust those things off. We haven't talked about the glasses. You, no, you, we haven't. I'm not sure that there is much to talk about, but they are large. Yes. Do we make anything of those? Of is, large glasses?
3: Are they like a statement piece? Like it's,
1: you almost forget that there are eyes behind those glasses because the, the, the glass itself takes up so much space on the face. So does that tell us anything one way or the other about Man in the Mirror?
3: To me, that's that's just another style piece. Yeah. That's the earrings and the jabot.
1: It's a loud choice, but I can't tell in which direction. I can't tell if it's like I want to hide more my eyes or I want to bring them even more forward, or it's neither of
3: those. It's got to be the latter. You think bring so? Bring them even more forward.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, then I think then that, that gives me even more confidence in a yes.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll sign off on that. What about height?
1: What about it? Any height th- issues? I don't know. The people who I've met who are shorter, like, It seems like I've had more than one conversation where it's not like necessarily say, I wish I were taller, but there is a a little bit of an insecurity that I think can come along with that. I think that actually goes for very, very tall people too, men and women, that there's a, a little bit of a discomfort with being too far outside the quote unquote norm.
3: I think being short is just, it's just genetics. It's a hand you were dealt Okay. And a lot of the pop science tells us that it's a disadvantage in your ability to have success, to have authority. Yeah. And I think I like it when that is proven wrong. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know. I don't know how we get over that bias. I mean, I can't say it's- I don't know how we get over any bias. I mean, you
1: know, when it comes to gender or race or disabilities or age or whatever, I mean, I look, I think one of the things I love about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she's Fighting for equality. And, you know, I wish in society at large, we paid more attention to similarities and not differences. And I think that that's trite and corny, and we can say that all we want, but I I feel like that is where this starts. All right, next category, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, we're wondering how they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine, whether they would even record it for an outgoing voicemail. What do you got here?
3: I went no... Yeah, I had a slight note too. What was your reasoning? I think it's it's she's very slow and enunciates a lot and speaks softly. Yeah. And I don't think that's a character she's playing. I think it's just she's not that comfortable speaking at volumes.
1: It's even a thing with people who worked with her where she would like have very long pauses in the middle of her sentences. I had no for a slightly different reason. I think she's got a real infatuation with the written word. This gets back to my strategic argumentation point. I think she just would prefer language be communicated as written down and read than oral arguments. Like, you have to slow down and put your thoughts and ideas together with a certain pace. There is magic that happens when you put pen to paper.
3: That's true. I mean, that's why journaling is such a psychiatric exercise. Right. Right. So we're agreed there that she didn't record her own for that reason. What about the other? Would she, from a nobility standpoint?
1: Oh, I think she's just in with the common person.
3: And would be willing to
1: say, you've reached the voice mailbox of the notorious RPG. Next category. (laughs) Regrets, public or private? What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I got three things.
3: Okay. Fire Two of them
1: are very related. I think this is the big thing her decision not to step down as a Supreme Court justice when Obama was president. There were calls for it. Apparently, Obama even met with her, and she said, for as long as I'm sharp and can do this, I want to be doing this. She did say in September of 2020, and this was sort of her last message to the world, quote, my fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. And, of course, that didn't happen. Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate confirmed with Trump's nomination of Amy Comey Barrett in the six weeks between Ginsburg's death and the election of Joe Biden. And that, of course, for people who follow this stuff, stood in contrast to when Scalia died in 2016 and Mitch McConnell wouldn't even have a hearing for Obama's nomination. I'm spacing on his name. Merrick Garland. Thank you. Who eventually was. For Obama's nomination for Merrick Garland, who is now our attorney general. This is the Shakespeare stuff to close the loop on why it's a regret. In saying my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed, she is, I think, expressing a regret that she didn't step down.
3: Because she knew... That she knew the Republicans were
1: going to be able to nominate somebody who ideologically she disagreed with and thus ensuring a more conservative court. For and she her.
3: made this statement when exactly?
1: I read this in a news article that said this was her, quote unquote, last message to the world. Yes. You know, she's what, 83 when Trump is elected and is doing exercises and is staying in good shape, but she's at an age when... You know, it's looking like death isn't too far away. So I, I think the regret probably, in as much as it is one, begins with the election of Donald Trump, because she realizes I've got to stay alive for years if I'm, if Democratic president is going to nominate my successor, and then that doesn't happen.
3: Well, she, she stays alive elect- three point seven five years.
1: Yeah, that's why it's like fucking like a crazy story. I mean, you can't make this shit up. Yes. I think this is the reason. I think that there are people, certainly on the left, Democrats, who still feel traumatized by her, not premature death, but the timing of her death, right? That that she's this unbelievably important figure on the court. Nobody could possibly step into those shoes. And then in dying weeks before there's a new president elected, there was a kind of frustration, pain, trauma, grieving, whatever, that... that I think it's persisted to this day and may persist for who knows how
3: long. So, yeah, there's trauma and grieving, but are they mad at her? Are are her supporters mad at her? That's a good question. Probably. On some level, probably. I
1: mean, I don't know. I think that if you were to really narrow it down to reproductive rights, which is absolutely something that, you know, we may see change.
2: You are going to see 20 states. Pass laws banning abortion outright, because they know that there are now going to be five votes on the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And wow. that's why these seats
0: matter so much.
1: If you put the whole story together here a little bit, appointed by Bill Clinton, who comes to be a more problematic figure, as her tenure on the court continues, the politics swing in a, in a direction opposite of her political ideology and become more cons- it becomes a more conservative court. And in particular, women's reproductive rights become increasingly under threat through really the early part of the 21st century. And then in the weeks before it looks like there's going to be a Democratic president who can appoint her successor, she dies. So the question in my mind is, is that thought in her mind on her deathbed?
3: Had to be. Yeah, Had
1: to be. I just want to sit with that, though, right? Like, we've talked about a lot that's desirable about this life. The idea of having some major historically consequential regret, like on your deathbed. Literally on the
3: deathbed. Doesn't
1: that fucking terrify you? That idea that you did like, oh, fuck. I don't want to die with that thought in my head.
3: She had to have.
1: I don't know. This is a, not knowable. We're not in her mind. There is a possibility that she's also able to step outside of history and be like, and have some humility around what this all means. Yeah. I don't know. She but, could but that look down scares at, me.
3: at us right now and say, You dumb fucks. This is a part of a master plan. Oh, oh she's absolutely. Just, she's been doing that for the last hour. <laughs> just <laughs> like she's just saying, Well, just watch this play out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, look, but, there, but there is no end so. of history. Right. I don't know. All right. I got two more. Calling Trump a faker. in 2016. She later said it was ill-advised, but she said something else before that was disparaging. I forget what it was. And then there was a follow-up interview and that's where she called him a faker. She didn't back down from her words and then later said, I shouldn't have done this. This is
3: outside of her constitutional duty.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it threatens the integrity of the court in some way. So it's a regret. And it's it's a regret that she just did it. Yeah, I think so. I I think that given the politics at the moment, you know, it's, it's so a sort of understandable because I think that Trump for her represented, you know, so much she'd fought against in her career and so much against of what she stood for. I think she perceived, among other things, a tremendous amount of misogyny in who Trump was and what his politics were about. And but she,
3: she regrets it only because it undermines...
1: The, the credibility of the court, the whole not purse, not sword thing, that the court ultimately only has its reputation by giving these disparaging... Remarks, she opens the door for a credible argument that you shouldn't, you, you are not in a position to weigh in with, you know, impartiality or whatever, with judicial discretion as to whether or not, you know, these questions are right or wrong.
3: Yeah, it made it difficult yes. on her. And I think she understood that. You got to wonder, going back to your first point, if like the actual thought going through her head in, in the final moments was if that fucking faker appoints somebody in the next six weeks
1: yeah yeah look this is not crazy to speculate on that possibility yeah i mean in in fact feels like human nature that that's that's the thought that's going through your mind as you go into the afterlife whatever that is we'll get to saint peter
3: later yeah if your mind it goes with you who knows
1: All right. Last one I had was she was not on board with Roe v. Wade. She was, in a way. She certainly supported reproductive rights, but she said the court was too sweeping. She anticipated a strong anti-abortion political groundswell and backlash that has absolutely emerged. And she said that she believed that in as much as the court changes policy, it ought to be case-by-case, slow and deliberative, you know, steady-as-she-goes kinds of change, not...
3: Sweeping policy.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that was, that's my understanding of why she was actually not in favor of the actual ruling of Roe v. Wade, even though she's obviously a champion of reproductive rights. That's what I got on regrets. I mean, that's, that's the elephant in the room, yeah. Okay. Okay. Next category then. Good dreams, bad dreams. Does this person have a haunted look in the eye? Something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma. I've got to take here. I can lead, you can lead. You can lead. I went bad. And here's my case. I don't see a traumatized look, but I do see her as devoted to the art of argumentation. And argumentation to me is something that keeps me up at night. I replay conversations I have where I'm like trying to make a case or trying to make a point, And I'm trying to like scour my psyche and my intellect for more arguments to persuade somebody about something. That's what her whole life is about. And I think she worked into a flow state into the wee hours of the, of the morning. She didn't like to get up early in the morning. So I think bad dreams.
3: Yeah. I also went bad, the short evidence losing her sister as an infant and losing her mother at the age of sixteen,
1: yeah, on her on the day of her high school graduation,
3: yes, yeah. so that I mean that can come to you in your dreams throughout life, but that's not the prevailing argument I'm making. I'm going poor sleep hygiene, yeah, yeah she yeah. she worked really late, went yeah. to bed at irregular hours, didn't sleep much, and yeah
1: she was she was. At one point, going to Harvard Law School, taking care of a baby, taking care of a husband who had testicular cancer, and taking his notes for him for his Harvard classes. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. That's a lot of plates. Yeah. And so So, that's going to lead to poor
3: sleep hygiene. Yeah, inconsistent sleep and wake times, maybe not reading something light before bed.
1: Yeah. So we both came to bad dreams. I did have one other thing I wanted to say about this. I really, I want to have that conversation with her, you know? Like, do you regret that or not? Like, boy, that's the question that she's just going to, like, leave history with.
3: You want to have that question with her in the afterlife. Yeah,
1: and that's actually a pretty good segue into a cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. Which one of these would we most want to have done with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds the most interesting or fun, or maybe what lingering curiosity do we have about this person? So I'll just steal this since I'm sort of on a roll here. I went Irish coffee. Uh-huh. Which is a little bit of a cheat. That is a cheat. I needed her to loosen up a little bit. I want the intellect, but boy, I want an answer to that question. I want to know, and here's how I here's how I've come to think of this 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 question about whether or not she regrets not stepping down. I I do think that it has something to do with your ability to step outside of history and say that humanity and culture and society doesn't have a beginning and an end. And I want to know if she's got the ability to have inner peace around what happened and step outside of that and say, I'm just one person ultimately. Yes, I had power. Yes, my life was consequential. I want to know one way or another how she feels about that. And I want to get a little drunk. And I want to have a like sort of smart conversation about that. So I don't know. A couple shots of Jameson. And a nice, you know, grande. All
3: right, well, after that, send her over to my house because we are going to smoke some joints. Is that <laughs> right? What's Ruth that? and I are going to. I selected cannabis. One, if I can make... P- poor lady's
1: not going to make it. home. Yeah, talk about poor sleep hygiene.
3: <laughs> One, when I did hear her laugh in some of those Scalia things or with her granddaughter, fantastic laugh. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. lovely, so charming, giggly laugh. Right? If, we can, if I can get some of that, then that may be all I need to like, just awaken some some dead serotonin inside of me but i also want to have the conversation i want it to be a, a boundless conversation about fairness she devoted her life to fairness mostly around gender what i just talked to you about with short people that's just another tiny example and that's there, there's just so much unfairness Everywhere, in yep. every moment of the universe. And so I want to talk about it from a, a really like global or, or almost galactic perspective. Is that where... Like what does justice really mean? Is, is it ever achievable? Is there ever a point that we've done the best we can? Or is it an ongoing fight that's going to happen in perpetuity? And I'm not saying I'm going to believe her opinion, especially because she's smoking marijuana.
1: Yeah, why uh, why
3: pot to get out of all this? Because I think you've got to erase some boundaries. You have to yeah. be able to take some assumptions and restrictions out of your head yeah, and be able to think and go out there yeah and we can put on some good jazz music We can put on some miles or something
1: fairness equality justice i guess all of those things are kind of jumbled in my mind as one idea but i guess the way you were describing a second ago as if there's some resolution as if there's some you know ideal
3: i think that that's an ephemeral concept but i would have liked to have heard her like take a stab at it and i want her to project 200 years in the future yeah so with her achievements as as an equalizer i just want to have that philosophical conversation yeah Okay.
1: We're here. The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in varsity blues, I don't want your
3: life. Ahmet, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do you want her life? I never start out with a yes or no. Yeah. So let me tell you, I don't like the job very much. I certainly like the outcomes it produced, but the volumes and volumes of reading and writing. And the solitude that goes along with that, I don't like that very much. I agree. It's,
1: it looks lonely. And it also
3: looks like heavy and a burden. Yeah, I'm glad there are, there are people that are gifted to do it. But goddamn everything else, I just can't say no. The chapters, the marriage, the unexpected outcome, the impact on the world, the setting example for young girls and Women and men, and affecting policy that is life changing for many individuals. I can't say no to it. I can't. Like with Nelson Mandela, I had a problem with that much sacrifice and being that important, into which you don't have choice and you don't have agency.
1: And you said no to Mandela,
3: and I said no to Mandela, and I said yes. Yeah. So I yeah, I have to say yes. I mean, this is a model human being, and I I see this one regret that we have that that can affect the world for a while, but I think what she's achieved before that outweighs that possibility.
1: And I'm sure she could tell herself that story and probably did.
3: Yeah, but I, you know, I, I see a model life with a little glitch. And forget all of that. Like If she was not a Supreme Court justice, if she wasn't even a lawyer, the model marriage, that alone, is something to say yes to a Vanderbeek. So you're a yes. I'm a yes. On the fence... I'm on the fence.
1: I actually really like your point about I don't like the job. I mean, I think that it's one thing to interpret the law, and I I think it's another thing to revere it, and I think it's yet another thing to shape it and decide what's right and wrong. I mean, you know, we all have a sense of what's right and wrong. We all have an idea of the way the world's supposed to be, and we should fight for that. When I said yes to Nelson Mandela, I mean, I, there was a moment where I was feeling a, that I do think it's important that we retain idealism into old age, and Ruth Bitter Ginsburg does that, but I don't like the job. I don't really love the idea of weighing in on right and wrong, even though I certainly have my strong opinions, and I really don't like the possibility of a deathbed moment where you second guess the whole thing. I don't, I don't think she did that. I, I think that'd be going too far, but what's, what's sort of raging in my mind is as an inner battle here, you got to have some humility to be able to step outside of history and say, I'm just one person and also sit on the Supreme court and make decisions about how, law is interpreted and what's fair and what's right and what's just. I don't know if you can do both things. (sighs) The marriage is unbelievable. The family life is unbelievable. The upward staircase is unbelievable. But the poor sleep and the tragic ending and the responsibility to weigh in on not just gender inequality, but like justice broadly in a wide range of domains and places I don't want that responsibility. I think I'm a no. There's something that looks just fucking exhausting to me about that. And I'm not sure that's how I would want to dedicate my life. Even if I do have my own passions and idealism about the way I'd like things to go, I I, kind of feel like I'm aiming for a different thing. I don't want to lay in bed at night having arguments in my head. You know? Ask me tomorrow, and I might be a yes, but today I'm a no.
3: Okay. We have a yes and a no. Did that make sense? My case for the no? It all made sense. I'm not sure about the humility argument. I don't see her
1: as, like, displaying arrogance or anything like that. But I do see a level of self-importance there that I, that I don't want. I don't see her, you know, pounding her chest about how great she is, but I also, I, I, don't, I don't think you get that job without... Some level of self-importance.
3: Yeah, so you're you're saying it's not so much of a personality choice. It's what she had to have to have the job.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Do you feel any more, like, a little less grief having had this conversation?
3: No. <laughs> no, it's, it's not played out yet.
1: But it's never played out. I don't know. I,
3: I do. Do you?
1: Yeah. I do. I do. I think that the idea that she might've regretted the nature of her death, I needed to look at it. And the more I look at it, I doubt she did. And I didn't, that would have existed only in my head as a, as a possibility of how she's telling her own story and how history should, you know, will look at this life. It's got a little bit less, I don't know, explosivity to it as an idea, having had the conversation with you. I understand. So, yeah, I feel a little less grief. Okay. I think we're at the pearly gates. You want to take this? Yeah. Okay. You are Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You've died and ascended. And St. Peter, the Unitarian proxy for the afterlife, is there
3: greeting you at the pearly
1: gates? It's your opportunity to make your
3: argument, your pitch. St. Peter RBG here. If this has to be one of my long-written opinions, then there's clearly something structurally wrong in your administration. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just assume that I'm going to be let in. But, But however, let me tell you something. Your job essentially is to pass judgment on whether someone should pass through or not, and that should be based on their actions entirely. Maybe 50, 60 years ago, you would look at men and women differently on their right to pass through these gates. And I'm pretty damn sure you don't right now. It's all on the basis of action and intention of how you lived your life. That was me. Let me in.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you are enjoying our show, then please tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your children, tell your colleagues, uh, tell everybody. Just tell everybody about our show. Podcasts, by and large, grow by word of mouth, and we need your help. Also, you can contact us at hello at famousandgravy.com. Feel free to send us an email. Why not? You can also find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at famousandgravy. And please sign up for our newsletter. It's on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss and Morgan Honaker. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. And again, please tell people about our show. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: To achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the
1: problem? What's the problem?
0: Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> my mom is My mom is right there. From Airship